think I'm on now. Ooh, good morning. There we go. <laughs> it is so lovely to be with you this morning, um, especially as I've been away for a couple of weeks. So I've come back to a whole new church. Look at all these faces. My goodness. Um, <laughs> um, if you don't know me, I'm Morag, and I am one of the home group leaders here at Kingdom Vineyard. Um, I'm part of the preaching team, as you can see. You may be wondering why by the end of this morning. <laughs> we are continuing our sermon series in the Book of Acts, um, which Jim summarized brilliantly last week in the story so far. Um, but this week, we are picking up with Barnabas and Paul's first journey after they were called and commissioned at Antioch. And I have got a chunk of scripture for us this morning. Um, so I'm just going to dive straight in. We'll just get right into the scripture and we'll recap from chapter 13, verse 2. It'll come on up on the screen, but you can feel free to follow along in your Bible or device or whatever you have to hand. So, chapter 13 at verse 2. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Um, can we put up the map? Got a wee map here, because there was a lot of place names in there. I should have asked Jesse for his laser pointer. Laser. Um, so they've started off in Antioch, bottom right there. Um, so they head to Seleucia, which is just the port. So Antioch is a bit inland, and Seleucia is the port. From there, they go to Cyprus, to Salamis. Um, we're told that they're sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, but not whether he specified an exact destination or not. Barnabas was originally from Cyprus, so they may have thought, well, that's a good place to start. We're not told an awful lot about the first stop in Salamis. 
apart from that they preached in the synagogues. And John, who's also called John or John Mark, was with them. They travel through the whole island and end up the other end of Cyprus at Paphos, where they have what we might call a power encounter. It's two types of power. Human power represented by the Roman governor or proconsul, Sergius Paulus, and a dark spiritual power represented by this odd character of a Jewish sorcerer, Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus, also known as Elymas. First, can we say that being a Jewish sorcerer should be a contradiction in terms? There should be no such thing as a Jewish sorcerer. Magic and sorcery were condemned by the Mosaic law. And if that's not bad enough, he's also a false prophet, speaking as if he's heard from God when clearly he hadn't. Despite being recognized as an intelligent man, the proconsul seems to have been taken in by this guy and has allowed him some influence on his life. When Paul and Barnabas um, come onto the scene, I think Elymas recognizes something in them that is a threat to his authority and certainly a threat to his influence and standing with the governor. He tries to put a spanner in the works for Barnabas and Saul, but Saul sees right through him. Or more precisely, the Holy Spirit in Saul sees right through him. Elymas is called out for what he really is. And just as he tried to lead others into darkness, he suffers that fate himself as he is struck blind. In verse 12, we are told that when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. He saw what has happened and believed, but was also amazed about the teaching, word and power, the teaching backed up with a demonstration of the kingdom. Just on a wee side note, as you might have noticed, I'm getting mixed up with Saul and Paul and everything. So he changes his name in the middle of this passage. He goes from being Saul to Paul. But it is, it's just to reiterate, this is not a renaming ceremony or anything like that. It's just Paul had two names. He was uh, Saul, which was Hebrew, and Paul, which was Greek. And it's actually not that uncommon. I was just thinking about this. My dad has two names. Um, depending on how you know him, my dad is either Hugh, which is an English name, or Ewan, which is a Gaelic name. So um, just the same thing. Depending on where you met Paul, he might be Saul to you or he might be Paul to you. Paul is going to be the more common name as we go forward because he's going to be speaking in more non-Jewish and Gentile settings. That's the simple thing. Anyway, after this, Paul and his companions are on the move again. Um, I'm going to read from verse 13, but we'll just leave the map up so we can just follow it where he's going there. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. Now, you can see clearly there that there's another Antioch. It's not the same one. They haven't gone back the way. So they're up Pisidia and Galatia up in Asia Minor there. Um, and as quickly as John Mark has entered the story, he's off again. So just take note of this for now. Um, it becomes a bit of an issue later on in the book, but we'll just pass over that just now. Apparently the next line from Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch, um, is a bit of an understatement. Apparently this is one of the most arduous and dangerous roads they are going from a sea level 
to a plateau at about 3,500 feet, crossing the Taurus Mountains. This is a road to be tackled by mountain goats and not mere mortals. For added spice, it was also notorious for bandits and robbers. It has been suggested that this was an enforced decision for Paul. Some of you might have heard that um, Paul had an illness, which he, he never really gets rid of, which he later on refers to as a thorn in his flesh. And the suggestion could be that he contracted a type of malaria, which is common in the coastal region, and to get relief, they headed up to the high country at Antioch. I have to say, I don't know if that's true or not. It's a possible explanation. At any rate, we don't hear of them teaching again until they get to Antioch. It's also worth noting that we get a switch to from Barnabas and Paul, or Barnabas and Saul, to Paul and companions, or Paul and Barnabas, suggesting that there might be a change in the leadership with Paul becoming the more prominent one. Don't know if this bothers Barnabas too much. It might well have been a planned move, a product of, may I suggest, IRTDMNR, which is the catchy acronym that the vineyard uses, isn't it? It's great, like that big church, whatever that was, I did not catch that one. Anyway. Um, what we use in the vineyard to describe how we train leaders. And it stands for... Where's Caitlin? She's disappeared. <laughs> Can't pick on her. Where's the other intern? <laughs> um, people who have done the home group leaders training should know this. Um, it's, come on, identify, recruit, train, deploy, or reproduce. I've got reproduce down. <laughs> yeah. So, what I'm suggesting is that Paul is in the being deployed phase with Barnabas alongside him, maybe for the monitoring and nurturing phases. Um, so, we find them in Pisidian Antioch. And we're We'll go back to the scriptures now, back to chapter 13 at verse 14. And bear with me because this is quite a chunk. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel, the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king, 
God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. This is one of Paul's first recorded sermons, and probably one with um, most detail, although I suspect that even this account is heavily summarized. You'll hear later of a rather dramatic consequence of Paul's long-windedness. Um, I, however, will try and keep on track this morning. Um, we see Paul uh, start the pattern that he will continue throughout his ministry, going on the Sabbath to the synagogue and teaching about Jesus from the scriptures. It was normal practice for the synagogue leader to ask visitors for words of encouragement, but you do wonder if in this case they knew what they were letting themselves in for. I wonder next week, Jim, do we just read the scripture and say... Any thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Might make us rather nervous, but anyway. 
But this is where Paul comes into his own. As a Pharisee, he would know the scriptures backwards, frontwards, any other ways. He quotes a bunch of Old Testament passages, including Psalms 2 and 16 and Isaiah 55. It's interesting that these are some of the same passages that Peter quoted much earlier back in Acts, in Acts 2 and 4. Maybe these are the classic Jesus passages, or, or maybe it's something that Peter and Paul talked about in his time in Jerusalem. I was also wondering what scriptures had been read in the synagogue that day. It would seem to me that Paul would use them as his starting point. Um, to be honest, the only suggestion that I read that I came across was it might have been a passage from 2 Samuel, where King David is given promises about his house and kingdom being established forever which would give Paul a great in to talk about those promises being fulfilled in Jesus. But there's loads of other possibilities because there's so much of Scripture that points towards Jesus. So Paul's sermon gives us a potted history of Israel from the exodus into the promised land through the time of judges to the time of kings and to the reign of King David, a man after God's own heart. This is what his audience loved to hear their own history, especially precious to Jews who have been scattered from Jerusalem and from Palestine into the diaspora. In the same way as you find that there's no one so Scottish as a Scot abroad. <laughs> you're never as proud of your heritage as when you're detached from it in some way. And Paul brings up John the Baptist. He was widely accepted as a prophet, and it could well be that his hearers were familiar with John but maybe not so much with Jesus. So Paul quotes John leading on to Jesus, whose sandals John was unworthy to, was, wasn't worthy to untie. He explains the leader's failure to recognize Jesus was in fact the fulfillment of the words of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, just as they had done. A subtle or maybe not so subtle suggestion that they don't make the same mistake and miss what the scriptures are saying about Jesus. Jesus was killed, but God raised him from the dead. People have testified and are witnesses to this. It happened to people. And Paul goes on, this is what it means. Good news. The promises we've just read about, fulfilled. Evidenced by these quotes from scripture. Psalm 2 verse 7, you are my son, today I've become your father. Isaiah 55, verse 3, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. And to punch home the importance of God raising Jesus from the dead as the fulfillment of the promise to David, you will not let your holy ones see decay. David, as Paul says, very much did decay, dead, unburied, worm food. But Jesus didn't. Raised from the dead before there was any decomposition. Thank you very much. Promise fulfilled. Finally, Paul comes into land. This means for you now forgiveness of sins. No one could fulfill the law, but everyone who believes in Jesus is justified, put right with God. And if his suggestion earlier was too subtle, he gets explicit. Take care that what the prophets have said doesn't happen to you. And quotes Habakkuk 1 verse 5. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. 
for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. It's different, yeah. It's unexpected, but we were warned. The interests of his hearers have definitely been piqued as Paul and Barnabas um, get invited back. So you can't have been too long-winded because you don't get asked back if your sermon is too long. And some of the congregation couldn't wait to the next week. And they chatted more over lunch, it would seem. And they were encouraged to continue in the grace of God. That seems to be what they needed to hear. It's about grace. Your sins can be forgiven. Guilt over not fulfilling all the law or not being Jewish enough. There is grace for that. And his name is Jesus. I love it, Paul. I'm pretty sure Barnabas was proud. (laughs) We could just leave it there. Paul has said it all. Promise fulfilled. Put right with God. All through Jesus. But wouldn't be me without wanting to make a couple of quick additional points that I think we can learn from the, the two um, bits of scripture that we've read today. The first point is to learn from how Paul shares Jesus with people, and that is know your audience. He takes two very different approaches in the two sections that we've read. I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have got very far with the proconsul and Elymas if he had set about arguing with them from Scripture. I suspect that Elymas would have been up for the fight and the proconsul would have been lost in all the Jewish arguments. Equally, walking into the synagogue, staring at them all and declaring them evil would not have been the right approach either. Don't laugh too much, I've seen it done. No, a demonstration of true power was needed in the first encounter. This was a clash of kingdoms, and it needed to be shown that the kingdom of God was greater. In the synagogue, Paul was invited and given authority to speak by the leader. The context is that they are studying the scriptures. Seems a logical place to start. I would suggest that it is not often that people are argued into a relationship with Jesus. Some people will need a demonstration of power, the presence of the Holy Spirit, or an experience of God's love. Pray for them at every opportunity. Invite them to church or home group or pub church. Get them places to see and experience God. Others will give you an invitation to share why Jesus is important to you, simply because it's in context of doing life together, getting to know one another. My suggestion is you are honest and real and just be ready to answer questions. If you're not sure what the situation demands, ask the Holy Spirit. Paul does this constantly, and so should we, and be ready for him to answer. The last point I want to make this morning is a bit of a vineyard classic, which I want to explain really quickly. Yeah, we've got a bit of time. Um, It's uh, a wee phrase that we use. It's called, what do you have in your hand? It comes from when Moses was having his argument with God at the burning bush 
in Exodus chapter 3. He's somewhat reluctant to do what God is asking him to do. And at the start of chapter 4, God asks Moses, what is that in your hand? To which Moses replies, a staff, which God proceeds to turn into a snake and then back into a staff again. The ordinary thing that Moses had in his hand to do his day-to-day work as a shepherd as he was at the time was the thing that God used so that the Israelites would believe that God had sent him. For us, it has come to mean, what is the ordinary, everyday thing that you have that God could use? Paul's background was the scriptures, deep knowledge and study of the scriptures. And guess what? God used it, even turning it from the thing that was keeping him from the kingdom when he was opposing Christians to the thing that was bringing other people into the kingdom. How amazing is that? That's what you call being renewed. Jacqueline is an artist. She wants to make space for art and God to meet in appreciating and making art. It's what she has in her hand. Gregor loves reading and trying to understand complex ideas. So he starts a book group to read theology books and other things. It's what he has in his hand. David and Ali love to be hospitable. They have an open table every Christmas for people who would otherwise be left out or on their own. It's what they have in their hand. Do you see where I'm going with this? I don't know what you have in your hand, but don't dismiss yourself just because you think it's a boring staff. Your precise skills and background and experiences may be exactly what God is looking for. And never underestimate what can happen if you offer what is in your hand to the hand of God. Paul and Barnabas sent out in the power of the Holy Spirit, share Jesus wherever they can in context and with relevance to their audience, using the gifts and skills they have in their hands. May the Holy Spirit be with us to do likewise. Please stand and I'll pray for us. Father God, I thank you again that in Jesus, all your promises are fulfilled. That he has come so that we could be forgiven and put right with God. Holy Spirit, we offer to you again what we have in our hands. Our ordinary everyday life. Would you use it for your glory, Lord? May we be available. In Jesus' name, amen.